Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. But things like accountable care organizations and bundle payments, they're not home runs, but they're a bunch of singles and doubles. And maybe you put enough singles and doubles together and all of a sudden you start scoring and start getting in the right direction. I'm your host, Alan Weil. When we launched A Health Podacy a year ago, our goal was to take listeners beyond the research published in Health Affairs through conversations with our journal authors. And based on your reaction, we believe we've created something of unique value. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the podcast, I thought, who could we invite onto the show who captures what the podcast is all about? And the answer was easy. I invited and he accepted. That's Dr. Ashish Jha, who you'll hear from today. Dr. Cha epitomizes so much of what brings people into health policy and health services research, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. He's widely published, including, of course, in health affairs, but his public voice arises from a combination of deep expertise and this unique ability to explain very complex concepts in language accessible to the public. I have seen him summarize a broad body of research for an expert audience, and I have read his short Twitter threads that give us more insight into what's going on with COVID-19 than pretty much any other source you can find. It is that range that uh, I think uh, brings out or shows so much of, of his strength. Now, I met Ashish when He was at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We had some wonderful conversations as he became director of Harvard Global Health Institute. He's now the dean of the Brown School of Public Health and a professor of health services, policy, and practice. You've probably seen him on one of his many appearances in the news discussing COVID-19 and how our nation has responded. But we're going to cover many topics other than that, befitting someone whose experiences are as broad as his. Uh, Ashish, Dr. Ja, welcome to the program. Alan, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to spend some time with you. It's so great that you uh, agreed to join me. Um, You know, I don't want to start with COVID, although you have gained such an appropriately gained such a reputation as a a voice of of sanity uh, in the discussions uh, around uh, how our nation has responded to COVID. I want to go back to one of the first conversations I had with you, which was actually about uh, payment reform. Um, We were talking about what works and what doesn't in payment reform to try to achieve better value in the healthcare system. I feel like so many of these topics have been lost due to, uh, of course, the important focus on the COVID pandemic. But let's start with something other than COVID. Go back to those days when we were thinking about how do we make the healthcare system more efficient, more effective? What are your thoughts about what it would take to move us in that direction? Yeah, and let me start off by saying I'm delighted to spend a couple of minutes not talking about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> no, and look, COVID's very, very important. Obviously, the most important health crisis our country has faced in a century, and 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 so spending a lot of time talking about it is not a problem. But um, you know, this health system has really suffered through a lot in the last year and a half as a result of COVID. But the fundamental issues that animated us a year and a half ago. Um, still are there and will continue to be a problem and a challenge. Um, you know, we're at about $4 trillion a year of spending on healthcare, which is just an enormous amount of money. Um, in many ways, the health system uh, performs admirably and in lots of ways it doesn't. 
And I think in the conversations that we were having before the pandemic hit, the ones that we absolutely need to have uh, every bit as vigorously and maybe even more so, and I can make the case that maybe more so, um, is can we do this more efficiently? Can we do this in a way uh, that's less taxing on individual uh, pocketbooks and, and on our government and on businesses? And the two sources of greater efficiencies in my mind that I think I had settled on based on what I saw the evidence um, was one was we needed to figure out ways to bring prices down or at least control the, the cost, the high prices of healthcare and to slow their, their growth. And that could be everything from more competition to moving care to lower price point services. Um, but certainly consolidation in the marketplace was not a helpful force in the, in the price conversation. More broadly, there may be individual instances where that might or might not be true. And then the second, where payment reform has really been at the heart, and that's really when you think about CMS and Medicare's efforts, Medicare has fixed prices, so they, they, they can do less on pricing. Uh, but what they have done, as you know, is they've taken a whole variety of tactics to try to reduce inefficiencies. And to me, the evidence suggested, and still does, that things that are bo more broad, that are that look at a whole population, tend to move the needle much more than you know, paying a little bit more or a little bit less for this service or that service comes out in the wash. But things like cannibal care organizations and bundle payments, you know, they're not home runs, but they're a bunch of singles and doubles. And maybe you put enough singles and doubles together and all of a sudden you start scoring and start getting in the right direction. So I think last point maybe on, on this, Alan, you know, I, I have said to, to folks that we began a journey on thinking about value-based payments and, and payment reform Anyways, almost 20 years ago under President George W. Bush, definitely um, accelerated by President Obama, in many ways continued by President Trump. I think those issues are going to get even more salient and more focused under President Biden. Um, I, I see the, the future of payment reform quite bright, and I think that this movement we've been on uh, only goes faster in the years ahead. Well, I do want to stay here for a little while since you said you'd like to have a little break from COVID. You know, it does seem that this aspect in general has been more bipartisan than many other healthcare topics. Um, you mentioned leadership from presidents of both parties. I wonder, why do you think this does gain bipartisan support? And, and I guess I want to ask if you think it's real, because the fact is we're talking directionally about what needs to happen, but we haven't exactly put the squeeze on. And I wonder if the bipartisanship starts to evaporate if we do that. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And um, part of what's, so there are two reasons in my mind that we have bipartisan support for this kind of payment reform. One, is there's nothing particularly ideological about, I mean, so if you think about access issues, there are ideological issues. What is the role of government? Should government be providing insurance to individuals or is this an individual responsibility? That, that's a conversation we can have. I believe my personal view is that we need to have universal coverage and it is absolutely the role of government to ensure that people have coverage. But, you know, but a reasonable person could disagree on that. No reasonable person, I think, generally begins with, it's fine for Medicare to spend whatever, even if it's wasteful. Right. So whether you're a liberal or a conservative, you want Medicare to be efficient and you don't want it to be wasteful. And as long as you're talking about things that kind of create these broad general incentives towards more efficiency, I think you get a lot of bipartisan support. 
I do think that second part, though, is that if you go get more aggressive, you're going to start having winners and losers. And the losers always scream more loudly and the winners are more diffuse. And that starts creating political headwinds. So maybe part of what has allowed it to be successful so far, or at least politically, is that there haven't been massive losers and people who really... And if that accelerates, yeah, I worry a little bit about whether this will stay as nonpartisan. But I also worry that if we doesn't accelerate, then we're not going to get the kind of savings we need in the health system. So there's a little bit of a, a chicken, I mean, not chicken and egg, there's a little bit of a problem here of a tension we're going to have to deal with. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. You say it's not really ideological that we should be efficient in Medicare, but it's quite ideological whether the government should do anything about prices over on the private side, which is where the price problem is. As you know, Medicare sets rates. So you want to do something on spending, you've got to tackle prices that are, in some people's minds, you know, freely negotiated between uh, private providers and private insurers. And why would the government have a role in, in that debate? That, that's a pretty ideological topic. It is. But even there, Alan, I see a lot of bipartisan um, consensus. And consensus may be a little bit more stronger than I want it to be. But so pharma prices, I think we, that's where it kind of ideologically breaks down maybe the most. But if you get away from pharma and you just talk about prices around hospital care or, or physician care, I think lots of people across the political divide would argue that, yeah, if you had a free functioning, effective market, sure. But if you have highly consolidated markets with monopolies, I don't know anybody who sort of thinks let that sort of function on its own. You know, remedies may vary on ideological lines, but I, I do think, for instance, you know, President Biden came out pretty strongly against further market consolidation uh, and talked about healthcare. And that's an area where I saw a lot of activity, a lot of antitrust activity, again, under President Bush, Obama, Trump. So I think that part works. I think the issue really is around, and by the way, partly because if an MRI costs five times more in one hospital than another, rarely is the hospital arguing that it's innovation that's driving the higher prices, right? It's just, it's the same MRI. It's different in pharmaceuticals, where there's at least an argument to be made around innovation, and there's lots of disagreement about the kind of trade-off on innovation versus access, and how much of it is really innovation, and there is where I think the biggest political uh, and, and an ideological lines break down. But I'm hoping that there's still consensus in other areas of our healthcare system around prices. Well, I'll look forward to talking to you about this in five or 10 years, and let's see, let's see if it holds. <laughs> okay, well, I, I held it off as long as I could, but I do really want to come to the COVID pandemic where you have just become a key voice, a voice of reason and measure uh, in a, an environment where many voices are not that. So I want to ask you to reflect. You're incredibly good at sort of capturing where we are today and the status of the medical knowledge. But if you look at how we've done as a country, what would you say are the key lessons of what we've gotten right, what we've gotten wrong, so that, you know, hopefully we do better the next time around? Yeah. Well, it's a big question. And um, I think first, let's start with things we've gotten right, because there are a bunch of things we've gotten right. And so despite the fact that our country has suffered immeasurable loss. So many Americans have died and gotten sick and suffered. America 
not only America, but certainly America was at very much at the heart of this phenomenal effort uh, to get vaccines built and vaccines built quickly. And our scientific enterprise turned on a dime. It was, by the way, I, I hope it sticks. I don't know if it will. But to me, it was this incredible example of private sector and government coming together um, the government de-risking, private sector putting in uh, a lot of its own innovation. It was fabulous. And if that's not a success story in the pandemic, I don't know what is. There are other success stories, right? Um, we saw healthcare systems, despite their strain, despite their challenges, despite running out of protective equipment, the doctors and nurses who were willing to go to work every single day against a disease they didn't really understand, against they didn't know what kind of risk they were putting for themselves, for their families, it was phenomenal and just showed the level of professionalism of our healthcare workforce that I think, by the way, is truly second to none. Like we've got lots of problems in our healthcare system. The professionalism of our workforce is not one of them. Um, so huge successes. And, um, and then the third kind of related to the first is there have been private companies that have done a lot of really innovative work in building new tests, new therapies. So it's not just vaccines. There are a lot of ways in which the biomedical infrastructure of the United States, I think, performed admirably. What did not uh, perform quite as admirably? Uh, I certainly think that our public health infrastructure was weak. The public health leaders did an amazing job. I've been talking to people, public health, you know, health secretaries, health uh, department heads. They've been working 80, 90 hours a week since February of 2020. And some of them are still there plugging away. But they have small workforces. They don't have enough staff. They have a terrible IT systems. And, you know, it's just, it's a huge problem managing that. And that's not what we owed them. We owed them a, a much better public health system to use to respond. I think our political governance has really, this is some of the things that have surprised me, Alan. Um, I did not see the level of breakdown along kind of political lines of some key public health measures thought a lot about why that has happened, and we can talk more about that. Um, and then the part that we, our country really has struggled with is how misinformation and disinformation has in some ways sort of torn us apart a little bit, um, really created these very different views of the moment we are in, the pandemic we've had. And the fact that that misinformation exists everywhere in the world, but in some ways we've been more susceptible to it. Is something that we need to do some deep thinking about why our country fell prey to that and more importantly what we do to prevent that in the future yes uh, those are great observations and uh if we can continue the good ones and do something about the the not so good ones i think you're right we'll be well situated uh for the next go around which unfortunately is a matter of time let me just ask you to put your global health hat on and you worked on Ebola and you've obviously monitored COVID around the world. Can you expand that list? Is it a similar list when you think about the global health community? Yeah, it is a similar, but there's some other important things. Um, you know, countries around the world have been so variable in their response and some countries have done a fabulous job responding to this pandemic. Uh, other countries have really struggled. Uh, it is tempting to think that a country's wealth would be a major determinant of that. And if you were to tempt, so tempted, you'd be wrong. Uh, a lot of wealthy countries have done very poorly. 
lot of poor countries have done a phenomenal job. I'm thinking about countries, a lot of them in East Asia who really have just managed this at a very different level. Uh, I mean, obviously wealthy places like Singapore, Japan, Taiwan, but also poorer places like Vietnam, uh, which has managed to get through this pandemic in reasonably good shape. Um, but again, it's not just East Asia. You see even in Europe, across Europe, uh, UK has really struggled, continues to struggle in, in some ways. And, uh, and Germany has been terrific. Uh, again, not perfect. No one's gotten it perfect, right? It's been a really tough global pandemic. And if you then begin to ask, well, why? And I think this is going to be work, not just of public health people, but it's going to be the work of, of political scientists and sociologists. I mean, there's a lot around social cohesion and political leadership and governance that has really uh, held some countries in good shape. So there are so there are those meta issues. And then maybe one last thing is, you know, here we are, fall of 2021, um, about half the world is vaccinated. And so about 3.8 billion people have gotten at least one shot, but massive variations across the world. And the place that has really had little to no vaccinations, the continent of Africa. And for all the talk about global solidarity, uh, everybody took their production and said, we're going to vaccinate our own people first. America did it, Europe did it, India did it, China did it. And Africa was the one continent, really, that did not have manufacturing capability. And when I have spoken to my friends on the continent, including at the Africa CDC, their, their refrain is, never again are we going to put our destiny in the hands of others, uh, because we know where that leads our continent and our people. And so I think you're going to see a very different Africa come out of this pandemic, and, and mostly thankfully so, but I wish we had done, done this part differently. Yeah, the gap between the rhetoric and the reality here is really striking, isn't it? It is. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, um, not just COVID, uh, but we'll do it after we take a short break. Do you want to improve healthcare? Explore the University of Pennsylvania's Master of Healthcare Innovation. In the program, you can learn from expert faculty, network with professionals from across healthcare, and innovate in your workplace and career. Learn more about this 20-month online degree. Sign up for an info session or start your application at improvinghealthcare.net. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Ashish Jha. Dean of the Brown School of Public Health, uh, whose career has covered many topics. Before the break, we were talking about COVID. I want to turn completely to a different direction, which is your, your own career path. Um, you're, uh, you're the Dean of a School of Public Health. I met you when you were at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You're a practicing physician. What makes public health the intellectual home that you chose? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think I, I discovered my love of public health as a medical student. I was a medical student at Harvard. I was learning medicine and loving medicine, by the way, and loving kind of learning about disease and how we help people get better, but also really coming face to face with the reality that so much of what drove suffering that I saw in clinic or I saw in the hospital had to do with circumstances at home, had to do with circumstances at work, had to do with circumstances in the neighborhood where people lived. And that actually motivated me to start taking classes at the School of Public Health, which was right, right next door. Uh, I found 
chunks of time in my schedule and, and started taking classes at public health and started filling out the picture, right? I could see the, the front end, kind of the sharp end in the clinic. And then I could see the kind of the upstream stuff in the public health school class. And I just, I loved both parts of it. And as I finished clinical training, I thought a lot about which side I wanted to sit on. And I knew that I always wanted to practice medicine. And so I figured if I continue practicing medicine, I will have that kind of grounding of in reality that medicine gives you. Uh, but I needed to sit at a school of public health to think about that broader picture. And, you know, there's a good number of physicians in public health. It's also a great field because you get to hang out with economists and sociologists and political scientists and, and psychologists and all sorts of other people who keep you on your toes about your own ideas about what drives health. Wow, that's such a such a great answer. And it so fits how I think of you, the interdisciplinary uh, elements of it. At Harvard, there are all these different schools that we we interact with at Health Affairs. People publish from from multiple different faculties. And now you're relatively new in your tenure at Brown. Do you see yourself as able to facilitate that kind of interdisciplinary work across schools, um, across the campus? Is that one of your goals? Yeah, and it's actually one of the motivations for me to come to Brown. And again, I, you know, I spent 16 years at Harvard, loved it. It is a phenomenal institution. Um, Brown is smaller. And Brown is far less siloed as an institution. And uh, an interdisciplinary collaboration just is, a, is just much more in the DNA here. And so when I think about the big public health problems that I want our School of Public Health to be involved in solving, and I think about, and you're not going to be surprised by the list here, Alan, but right. pandemics, climate change. The, the challenges and opportunities around data, um, systemic racism in the United States and broader systemic inequities. These are problems where you need a truly interdisciplinary approach. And that is a big part of what made me come to Brown. And I have the 14 months I've spent here, even though most of that has been uh, in a pandemic, um, all of it, I guess, has been in a pandemic, um, has made me feel very confident that there are places where we can do that kind of work. And I'm not even sure that all that work needs to sit at a school of public health. A lot of the initiatives we're launching, you know, the president and the provost often say, well, does this need to sit at the school of public health? And my answer is no. It sits wherever it sits. Just the work is important. And uh, I like that about this place. And I don't worry so much about the silos. I've often wondered when we declare something a public health crisis, I think the, the public health community stands up and says, we're acknowledging it. But I think a lot of other people aren't quite sure what to do with that or think, well, now they're handling it. Right. You know, what's my role? Right. So hopefully some of this interdisciplinary uh, work will will enable us to take those kinds of pronouncements and turn them into real interdisciplinary action. Um, I want to turn to a completely different topic, which is, you know, I, I couldn't help it. I checked uh, yesterday. You have more than 280,000 Twitter followers. That's all. <laughs> I'm sure they're all your closest friends, but I am curious, particularly given uh, your earlier reference to disinformation, I am curious about how you feel about Twitter and the other social media uh, platforms. It's, it's clearly a place that you've decided to put some energy, but I suspect you also have some mixed feelings about it. I'd just like to know your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, mixed feelings are right. I mean, 
it, it look, we know, especially Facebook, but also Twitter, um, source of a lot is a major source of misinformation and disinformation. Um, and that's a problem. And obviously it is a major reason we find ourselves where we do, where still about a third quarter to a third of eligible Americans have not gotten vaccinated, um, why we continue to struggle with this pandemic. But if the question is, so do I wish we live in, in a world where we didn't have social media? Absolutely not. I think social media is also a very powerful medium for sharing good information. Look, um, there's a lot that social media companies can do to, to clean up the ecosystem. Misinformation is really just a pollutant, but I wouldn't get rid of the ecosystem altogether. Um, I find that Twitter is a great place for me to share ideas that are sometimes not perfectly, you know, thought through. I'm still kind of working through them. Uh, it is meant to be a bit more ephemeral, but also it's a great medium for communicating with broad groups of people. And it's not just about your Twitter followers. It's also about how it, how other people use it to build on it and amplify it. And maybe they have their own take on it. I get into these engagements that are very productive. And the nice part is it's often very brief. And I'll tweet something. Someone will write a thoughtful response I hadn't thought of. I'll go back and forth. It'll go on for five minutes. And then it's over. And everybody else gets to watch it. It's great. And maybe other people learn from it. Other people will contribute. There's no obligation to continue the conversation later. Um, it's a very useful medium for sharing ideas. It's also, I have learned, and I don't know that I appreciated this a year and a half ago, it often also drives news. I mean, I have been surprised at the number of times I or other people have written Twitter threads that then become the source of all the conversation in the news the next day. And so this, this mixing of traditional media and social media is now complete. Like it's hard to tell what starts where, um, where it all goes. There are some downsides, but I actually think there's a lot of upsides too. And I, and last point is, you know, when I think about where I get my information, I read papers, obviously, I get a lot of my scientific information from the original data, but I also get it from a group of people who I really trust deeply to interpret data. Because look, this pandemic requires a very deep level of expertise across a range of the topics. Like you have to be able to be somebody who both understands when you see a new variant, how much should we really care about it? There's a lot of deep kind of virological like expertise that's necessary. And yet you also got to be able to talk about like schools and what should we be doing in schools, which has, and the ability of experts to engage with each other and share information with each other is I think actually really, really helpful. We don't read, read each other's journals under normal circumstances. You know, um, the people who publish in health affairs are not the people who publish in virology, but they need to be able to read each other and, and Twitter allows for that to happen. Well, that's a very, uh, it's a very positive uh, set of outcomes that you describe. And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's completely fair. Uh, the question, I guess, will be whether the pollutants can, can be removed and, and who is the arbiter of, of, of what is pollution? Because that's, of course, a, a, a very hot topic. But I do think you have made very effective, positive use of it. So it's nice to hear your thoughts on it. Um, as we come to a close, I'm going to sort of circle back to where we started. You know, at some point, at least from a health policy perspective, we will put the COVID-19 pandemic behind us. Uh, the, the tail end, we're, we're not going to try to describe just yet, but it will be less dominant in our, in our daily sites. 
And it does feel like health policy has sort of been frozen in time during this period. Uh, we started talking about uh, cost. You brought up uh, climate. You brought up systemic racism and inequality. When we find some oxygen uh, for matters other than COVID, uh, what would you hope is at the front of the health policy agenda that uh, we just have set aside for a little bit too long because of this? Mm, that's a really good question, Alan. Um, so I'll tell you what I think isn't going to happen and shouldn't happen, which is we can't go back to the conversation of 2019. Like it, you don't get to pick up where you left off, right? You're like, okay, we had the pandemic, pandemic is over, let's go back. There's not that. What I expect will happen, and I suppose I hope will happen, is there are urgent, important, impactful issues on health systems. All the stuff you and I have been talking about for years around improving access, improving quality, making the system more efficient. But all of that has got to be now seen through the lens of a system that just went through a horrible health crisis. And we're going to have to start asking big questions like, what happens when the next pandemic hits? How do we get our system ready? By the way, the issues of cost, quality, and access played out in the pandemic. There were people who refused to get testing because they were convinced that they were going to be saddled with a $5,000 bill. We had these huge improvements in outcomes of managing COVID because we had been doing quality improvement for a long period of time. Like These things are not unrelated to each other. And I suspect that the health policy conversations that we are going to need to have on cost, quality, and access are going to be shaped also by, and what are the implications for pandemic preparedness? And what are the implications for a health system that's going to have to deal with more severe storms and heat waves? And these things are going to get intermixed, and it's going to make the conversation harder, but I think more relevant. And I don't know that in 2019 we were having those kinds of conversations. These things, pandemic risk, and climate change risk was still there in 2019, right? But it felt like they were distinct conversations from health policy. And I don't think we're going to have the ability to have them as distinct. And I actually welcome that. So I love that answer, and it makes me want to just keep going, which I know we're, we're going to have to stop soon. But, um, you know, it does feel like everyone says, you know, the, the pandemic has brought out the inequities that existed in the system, the weaknesses that exist in the system. But as you note, they were already there. So how is it that we don't fall into the trap, and it is sort of the public health trap, that as the crisis ebbs, the sense of urgency around those other issues just fades away as well because we don't have the focal point. It's not that the problems are solved or they're gone. It's just they're not as visible to the average person, just like they weren't two and a half years ago. You know, I, the other day I was flying to, um, to, uh, to California and as I was going through the scanner, something happened. They're like, can you take off your shoes? So I was like, sure, I took off my shoes. And as I was doing that, I thought, here we are 20 years after the shoe bomber tried to blow up a plane and we're still taking off shoes, meaning some things get like profoundly changed because of, a, of an experience. And other things don't. And we need to think about how do we not allow this horrible 18, 20 months, two years by the time it starts getting meaningfully better, um, just to fade into the background 
And I don't know that 20 years from now, I want to be totally shaped by it. But we need to make sure that the next five to 10 years, we are spending a lot of time, energy and resources to building a health system that doesn't forget the experience we've gone through. It's been so horrible that it's hard for me to kind of almost imagine that we're going to ignore it and go back. I'm hopeful this is going to call for leadership. It's going to call for leadership, not just political leadership, but leaders across our health system to say, we've got to build a more resilient system that can manage these things in the future. And I think uh, medical journals, I think academics, I think other uh, civil society organizations have an obligation to make sure that our country doesn't move on too quickly or too easily. Uh, not that we want to perseverate on the on the challenges, but we want to learn from them. We owe the people who've suffered so much and people passed away from this, at least that, that we will build something better. Well, I can't think of wiser words to end on, so we'll bring our conversation to a close. Um, Ashish, it's been a pleasure having you as a colleague for years and to uh, have the special treat as we are at our one-year anniversary on our podcast to have you as my guest on Health Policy. Thank you so much for joining me. Alan, uh, I was thrilled when you reached out. It was a pleasure talking to you. There's so many important issues for us to be working on. And I look forward to more conversations and more work to do together. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.